Hello and welcome to the Wild Cornwall podcast, brought to you by Cornwall Wildlife Trust. For today's episode, I returned to our nature reserve Hellman Tor near Bodmin to meet reserves manager Andy Collins. Andy told me all about the site there and the exciting rewilding plans for its future. Andy, welcome to the Wild Cornwall podcast. We're here at uh, Hellman Tor Nature Reserve. We've met in the car park and we're going to have a look at the top of the tour in a minute. Can we just start though by telling you what's your job at Cornwall Wildlife Trust? Why is this reserve important for you? Uh, so I'm the uh, Mid Cornwall Reserves Manager. My role involves looking after all the Mid Cornwall uh, nature reserves, 25 of them in all, from about Truro up to Bodmin. So we're going to get to the northern extent of my range up here. But uh, Helmantor is the largest of the sites, so it's just um, under 300 hectares in area, so pretty significant. So it must be quite a challenge managing 25 different reserves. How on earth do you spread your time across that many? It is challenging. They're obviously geographically quite spread out. Um, we have to prioritise, uh, as everything in life, so you, you need to prioritise the jobs as they come up. You have to be a bit reactive sometimes if stock have got out, etc. So it can be a bit exciting, a bit unpredictable at times, but that, that's part of the charm of the job, I think. And do some reserves take more effort managing than others? Yeah, certainly. I mean, Helm and Tor uh, takes a fair chunk of our time just because of its size. So um, I should point out that Helm and Tor is one of those 25, and that's 300 hectares. Um, the, a lot of the other sites are a lot smaller, um, so probably receive a little bit less attention. And different habitats require different uh, levels of kind of management, etc. Right. And and I'm right that Helm and Tor is our biggest nature reserve. That's correct. Um, yeah, the ones that we hold uh, the land holding outright, so we actually own it. Um, Penhale Sand Dunes is slightly larger, but that's MOD owned and um, Perrin Sands only yeah. have half. So, yes, as as our land holding, yes, it is our largest nature reserve. Yeah. Well, let's head up and um, have, a, have a look at it. Um, we're, we're heading up to the tour itself, which gives the reserve its its name. Yeah, so um, Helmand Tour is obviously the uh, high outcrop. I think it's just... Uh, height off the top of my head is about 210 metres above sea level. Uh, it gives that commanding view across the sites, but the reserve itself is split down into um, six or seven, depends how you break them up, uh, subsites, uh, call them, um, and yeah, that makes up uh, the wider site known as collectively as Helmand Tor. Right. So, were you always into wildlife, Andy? Uh, yeah. I've, I've, been into wildlife uh, since a young age. I um, was lucky enough, my my grandparents uh, owned a plant nursery, uh, so I spent a lot of my time over there just helping out with the nursery, but generally just going around. There's some local woods that I'd play in, etc., collecting frog spawn, finding caterpillars, growing them on into chrysalises, etc. Uh, but yeah, no, that's uh, it's always been a passion. It's always been outside as well. Um, yeah. Never did well being stuck in the in the classroom, etc. So yeah, when it did come to uh, kind of choosing a uh, degree, etc., um, my parents always said do something that you're passionate about. So then I went into conservation, and I did that actually studying down in Cornwall. So uh, Exeter University have all their biosciences down in Penryn. Right. So you were based to the Falmouth area. Yeah. Exactly. And then. How did that turn into the, the current role you now have? Did you 
go straight from uni to conservation? Uh, yeah, so uh, throughout the degree I was volunteering a lot, so getting out with uh, organisations such as Cornwall Wildlife Trust, the National Trust, um, some friends of groups as well. Um, so when I left university, I was lucky enough to get a, a traineeship with the uh, Barks, Bucks and Oxen Wildlife Trust. Um, and that gave me my first kind of position as it were, got a lot of training, etc., and a lot of experience. Um, so that was absolutely uh, essential in terms of progressing. And I actually came back down to Cornwall and did a uh, master's um, degree. More study. Uh, more studying, more expense, but um, it was really good. Um, and then uh, part way through that, um, the Barks, Bugs and Oxen Wildlife Trust offered me a position um, as an assistant reserves officer. So I went back and started doing that while writing up my dissertation in the evenings. So it was uh, pretty full on, but uh, it was good. You can't you can't say no to those opportunities no. when it arrives. So. And then it must have been great when you got this job returning to, to Cornwall. Yeah, it it just kind of aligned with everything. One of those life yeah, moments. Nicole, my wife was looking for a bit of change anyway, and we thought we'd we yeah if we got the opportunity, then why not? And luckily they offered it to me, and so yeah, now here I am, and uh, yeah, looking after this, these fantastic nature reserves. Yeah, well, and here we are now. We've reached the top. Slightly out of breath to reach the top yeah, of the tour. Yeah, probably, probably my heavy panting <laughs> while I was walking. You put me up a steep hill while talking. <laughs> so tell me what what we're we looking at. As we, as we gaze out here across this incredibly wild, lovely landscape. Okay, yeah, so as I said before, Helmontor's got a very commanding view. You can look 360 degrees, and on a clear day, I don't think you can quite see today. It's a bit hazy, but um, you can see the north and south coasts. Um, you've got uh, views um, over to, to kind of, uh, what's that? That's south, uh, southeast-ish, towards the Calais country. So you've got the uh, Cornish Alps that way. Um, and then you've got um, the kind of ridgeway which has the Saints Way um, blowing off down it. But um, in the foreground, we've got, um, we're looking out across uh, South Redmore and North Redmore and Higher Trevilmix. So these are sites that we own that form part of the Helmand Tour. And we've got our newest uh, piece of ground, uh, which is this kind of hillock um, that's surrounded on three sides by this kind of mire, wet woodland, kind of willow car. Um, kind of blanket that covers around the edges of a Creeny Farm, so that's our our new site that we've taken on. And how big is Creeny Farm? Creeny Farm covers uh, it's about 100 acres, so uh, what's that in our uh, new money? That's about 40 hectares. Right. So yeah, so this is a new uh, significant piece, um, and it's as I say, it's bounded on three sides by by Redmore, and it's. It's kind of that missing jigsaw piece uh, for the site. It, I mean, Helmetor is so special because it's almost continuous land holdings. Um, so you get less edge effects, etc. And so you, you can do more exciting things. And that, that's obviously what we're looking to achieve in the, in the future. Yeah. So, so Creeny Farm purchased last year. We've, we've just taken ownership we of it. We have it last month. So, uh, yeah. What, what are the challenges there? I mean, what, what state is the... The land currently in well it's it's an it was an organic farm so it's as a starting point it's not it's not actually that bad but it was obviously a um intensively farmed 
land uh, that we've got there. So we've got a bit of a nutrient enrichment going on, obviously deliberately, they're make, trying to make it as productive uh, as they could. Uh, they did break in some of the wetter pieces, so drainage, etc. the previous owners. So there's, there's challenges in terms of it has been modified. So we are trying to um, get that back to a more natural state. So we will reverse some of that kind of drainage that's happened over the years. Uh, and we will try to strip and remove that nutrient levels so uh, more natural plant communities can start establishing themselves. So yeah. that, that, that will take years for that to happen. It's a, bit, it's a gradual process that we have to go through, but uh, once it gets there, it's going to be absolutely fantastic. Great. Let's, uh, let's now head down to a different part of the reserve, shall we? Yeah, why not? Great. So tell me where we're headed to now, Andy. So we've just uh, come down from the tour and we're uh, entering our Breeny Common um, site. Right. And um, we talked a little bit about what makes Hellman Tour special in terms of its size and having those joined up areas. What, what, what else is there? So uh, habitat wise, um, part of the reason the site is so uh, biodiverse is the whole mixture of habitat types that we have here. Right. So there's a real mosaic. Um, so we've got um, willow car, so this wet woodland, kind of this primeval kind of uh, wood and with lots of epiphytes. So uh, plants that grow on top of plants. So you've got your mosses, your lichens, your okay. ferns growing off there. Uh, then we've got in the drier pieces, we've got uh, oak woodland with a hazel understory, obviously great for dormice, etc. And then you've got um, your more open habitat. So we've got um, Atlantic heathland, so we've got wet and dry heathland. You've then got acid grassland mixed into there as well. And then we've got uh, open water habitats, so pools right. and ponds, etc. It's a huge range of different habitats. Yes, it is, yeah, and it obviously supports a whole host of different wildlife. And where those habitats interact and change and those transitionary zones are, are really important. You get a lot of invertebrate activity in there as well. Go back to the dormice briefly. Mm. The, their population across the UK is, is not in great shape, is that right? No, uh, Cornwall's a bit of a hotspot for them, uh, mm. really. It's, um, so our population's here, we've been monitoring them and they've been doing really, really well. Um, they've really suffered from habitat fragmentation, habitat loss. Um, so whether that be um, through uh, removal of hedgerows or kind of over-management of hedgerows, so flailed hedgerows, etc., um, or actually woodlands, um, not having a coppice rotation, etc. The understory not being uh, managed as it should. So that's why then they're doing well here. Yeah. So the it's oak woodland, it, it, um, yeah. So they they are well. primarily on the oak woodland with that kind of hazel understory. Um, you will find them in the wider landscape. We've had reports of them um, actually overwintering. Um, what? So um, a lot of people think they just stick to hazel woodland um, and they're up in the canopy. They are quite arboreal, but actually over winter they'll come down to the ground into the leaf litter and actually make a uh, hibernaculum, uh, well hibernaculum, no, that's the wrong term, hibernation nest. So they'll um, weave together some leaves, etc., and just uh, hunker down there. But because um, our open habitat has uh, tussock grasses, etc., such as Melinia, that's purple moor grass, um, they've been found in those tussocks, kind of. 
made a little sleeping bag out of the grass and then stay over winter and that. So, uh, yeah. Great. Our cows. So these there. are our belted Galloway. They are indeed. And we don't own these cows, do we? No, uh, so uh, these are owned by Christine Parker, who's a local farmer. She lives um, just down the road there. Um, yeah, we've been working there for many years now. Um, so it's, it's nice to uh, be able to work with local farmers because it, um, it, it, it gets them to value the, the reserve. Um, obviously, these are beef cattle, so there is a product coming off of it. I've, I'd say a very high quality product. Um, they're obviously helping for, with conservation. So um, the job they're doing is effectively um, variable defoliation, which is a very posh way of saying that they go around and they graze areas. They leave some areas long, they leave some areas short. And that increases the structural diversity. Instead of everything being the kind of same height and um, size, they create kind of short hot sward areas that are good for kind of basking snakes or invertebrates etc and then they'll leave some long areas as well so those kind of larger plants that maybe want to grow up something else like your uh, vetches etc they'll they'll be in there as well so that's what we aim them to do and it's it's a balance get the stocking numbers right so too many and it'll be short everywhere and we don't want that too few and then not getting into it and you'll start having habitats go through succession so um we'll have our oak woodland spilling out, um, more scrubland happening, which is great habitat in itself, but that would be at the cost of our maybe acid grassland or wet grass or, or heathland, etc. It's a, it, they help us try to strike a balance between it. Um, they're kind of our pseudo oryxes, if you, if you want to call that, which is um, an extinct um, kind of bovine breed. They used to be in the UK thousands of years ago, um, but they would be doing a very, very similar job. They're slightly bigger than what the belties are, uh, they would have had horns that, um, yeah, they're, they're the best we've got at the minute. <laughs> yeah. So thousands of years ago, you would have had these these oryxes roaming land like this. Yes. And the habitat would have been very different as a result of the, the work they were doing, grazing in the way they grazed. Yeah, so um, I think it was Oliver Rackham who uh, first proposed, reported this idea of the wildwood. And it's a very romanticised kind of primeval kind of forest you think about. And that a lot of people think that uh, back then, the UK was this um, water wall kind of ancient kind of oak woodland and that humans came cut it all down. And there is an element of truth to that. There it would have been a lot more wooded, but um, the new theory by uh, Franz Zira has generally accepted, I think Oliver Rackham actually uh, accepted it at near the end of his life, that um, in fact, it wouldn't have been all woodland because we'd have had these megafauna kind of crashing through the undergrowth, creating glades, etc. So, yes, it would be more wooded, but there'd also be an open habitat in there and a scrubland and everything in between. And it'd be a whole mosaic moving through. Um, and really, um, on these sides, that's what we're trying to achieve, um, trying to get that, that balance of different habitat types. And that's where, um, because the site is so large, that's where we can actually start thinking about mixed grazing. Where we've got smaller sites, so um, some sites are uh, less than 10 hectares in size, you'd need, say, a cow, two cows, half a pony, and a quarter of a pig. Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't quite, doesn't quite work. Uh, but when we start getting large areas, we can start um, thinking about doing mixed grazing and doing those interesting and trying to um, 
replicate those kind of more natural processes that yeah. we've somewhat lost um, yeah. in the landscape. So that's that's what we're looking to do here because we've got to a site. It's still in relative terms quite small if you think about um, uh, the kind of famous rewilding projects such as NEP. They've got um, I think it's fourteen hundred hectares. We're three hundred, so we're a lot, right. a lot it's smaller, a bit smaller, <laughs> bit smaller. <laughs> bit smaller. We, we are getting bigger, bigger uh, seems, yeah. <laughs> which is good. Uh, we we will continue to try to expand it as well and uh, take on more land, but uh, it gives us that opportunity. When you start to get that size, when you, that's when you can start introducing these um, more dynamic kind of. Feels a bit mean calling them management management tools, but that's kind of what they are. <laughs> uh, so that, that they they each have a role. Yeah. Uh, so the cattle, fantastic. I don't, I don't know if uh, many of the listeners have would have watched a cow eat, but I'm sad enough to have done that. So um, <laughs> what they do is that they've got a rasping um, way of eating. So what I mean is they wrap their tongue around the vegetation and then okay. tear at it. Right. And what that does is uh, leave a very uneven um, kind of finish to the ground. So again, it, it, that helps with that structural diversity I was talking about uh, before. Um, if you compare that to um, say ponies they've got two rows of teeth so they're like scissors going around now with ponies uh, they can be absolutely fantastic because they will actually start um, and when i say ponies i mean native breed ponies so we, we use dartmoors and exmoors primarily um, some uh, trusts have started using conics which is a um, polish breed but because we're in the southwest it seems the right breed to go for Exmoor Dartmoor. They're fantastic what they do. But they've got those two sets of teeth and they uh, will actually um, nibble at uh, scrub a bit more than what cows will. Cows will take um, leaves, etc. I mean, we're standing by a hawthorn and you can clearly see the lower leaves have been nibbled by the cows. By the cows yeah. But they're not quite equipped to deal with it, while the ponies have got more malleable lips, so they can kind of... Uh, a bit more delicate with the vegetation can actually manipulate it and actually adjust it and be, get their teeth in and they can be a little bit more selective than right. what the cows are. They're a little bit more broad grazing while ponies are a little bit more selective. Downside of ponies, if you leave them too long in there, I'm sure everyone's seen a pony paddock, it can <laughs> get grazed to absolutely nothing. So again, stocking numbers are correct. Um, are very important so and I guess you know, managing how you move them across the yeah so well. again we, we're currently um, trying to work out what the best way is to move the livestock around. I mean, it's a very romantic idea to have these free roaming herds moving through the landscape. The difficulty with that is they are like us. They like the nice things first. So they'll go for their favorite bits. And sometimes <laughs> we need them to push into the wetter, harder to reach areas, because if they don't, that again will go through succession. We'll start getting maybe willow car coming in where we, potentially don't want it. I mean, it's a bit of an argument. Do, oh, do we want to just allow that to naturally confirm? But again, because we haven't got the area and the size, we need to strike that balance between it. So we need them to do the job. So that's where we're looking at using, uh, we've been trialing recently, um, digital collars, so no, no fence collars. Um, and what they do is that you can set uh, from your mobile phone. It's all, all very fancy, all very clever <laughs> and fancy. Uh, but you can set um, a digital boundary. And what the collars do, they if the if the cow was approaching that boundary, it would start playing a noise that would get gradually louder, 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 and then it would actually administer a shock. It does that three times, uh, three rounds. If they go beyond that, it doesn't chuck them anymore. Um, 
and if they return the other way coming back into where they should be it doesn't shock them at all so very very clever and it notifies you if you say the cows are out and you go where are they and you can you find can them on the, your, so your it's, app, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it is really useful the the cattle need to be trained on how to use it you can't just throw it on them and go good luck um but they pick it up extremely quickly i mean christine cows it was three days it took them to learn it and they really respect it if you play that noise um near them they are like whoa backing yeah, up backing back up backing right. up <laughs> yeah so it, it they, so what what that means is that they don't actually get shocked that often um while uh, you might say electric fences etc they, they can but again they it's, it's very similar to an electric fence yeah in that they the animals learn quite quickly to respect it right um but it's just more instead of a visual barrier it's a, a audio barrier um that's right but so in terms of uh, future plans then, we, we've talked about the Belt of Galloway we've mm. got here. Is there a plan to introduce more cattle, different cattle? What are your, what are your thoughts? So again, we because we work so on the sites um, around Helm and Tor, I've got um, four different uh, graziers that I work with, so four local farmers, um, which is, I say, fantastic having those people um, involved in the management of the site. Um, so you've kind of got to work with them in terms of uh, we generally just use native breeds. So Belty, uh, Belties or Belty Galloway are native breeds. Um, so they're they're quite hardy and have kind of adapted to this kind of uh, work that we're putting them to this ground. And here, if we had some jerseys out here, they'd just be roaring at the gate saying, "Please get me off! This is awful! I want my ryegrass!" Um, while the Belties are here, they've kind of semi-aquatic cows and i see them right. and they're pretty much up to their bellies most of the time in water so they're, they're absolutely fantastic uh but mark the other side he's got angus and some dexters again they do a grand old job then we've got the pedricks and truscots over the other side um so it's a bit of a mix of cattle with creeny because we're kind of starting from scratch can't say too much because it's very very new but uh, effectively we as a trust may well buy a herd uh, right. of uh, longhorned um, cattle because that that's really i mean the belties do a fantastic term but they ha they they haven't got horns um and so what tell me what the horns do specifically. yeah so what's, um, what's the value of a horn uh, on a what's, cow a, what's the value of a horn so the idea is that with the horns they can manipulate the vegetation a little bit more so they can break branches down to access things they can actually you can see um i mean if i i went to nep the other month and you could see where the longhorns were actually um, kind of cutting up the sward and kind of yeah. dust bathing almost. And it, it just adds um, to the different kind of um, jobs they can do right on site and the, the effects they can have on the ground. Um, and it's, again, trying to get as close as we can to the oryx. Uh, yeah. And although the Beltleys do a fantastic job uh, and they have been doing a fantastic job, it, it's just that missing potential component. So we, we, we're looking at that in a minute, uh, but again, because we've got different herds, um, you've got to be a bit careful in terms of boundaries between them two. You don't can't have different herds mixing because of TB restrictions, etc. So that's again where those collars become useful. So actually setting those boundaries, ensuring they're not coming nose to nose, etc. So it's uh, yeah, can get a bit quite complicated. Yeah, it but, sounds it. <laughs> but um, and then and then the ponies. Yes. Um, so we, Corn Wildlife Trust owns twenty four ponies. Yes, we do. Yes. Um, are, are they the ones that will be? coming to here so we would probably because um they're put to work on our smaller sites the ones that um generally we can't find uh, a local farmer to take that on 
uh, they're too small or there's not somebody with the right animals in, in place. So that's where we, we grace them ourselves with our, our native breeds, um, plenty. So a mixture of Shetlands, Dartmoors and Exmoors. Um, they, they've got a full time job on the kind of other sites. So if I was to come and bring them on at these large sites out here, um, those other sites would suffer. So we'd probably look to get our own herd up here. Um, so we're not talking huge numbers. We're talking about probably about half a dozen, um, maybe up to 10 or so. And they would move around again. It's very like stocking densities we'd be talking about. But again, they would complement the cattle grazing as well. Um, then the other kind of exciting uh, thing we're looking at is introducing pigs as well. Now pigs are obviously replicating wild boar uh, and people do ask why why don't we just release wild, wild boar. boar. Um, and firstly it's because wild boar can cause havoc. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean I'm not against it per se but it's a lot hard, harder to argue I mean because there's we haven't got those natural predators etc you'd struggle to control their, their numbers uh, and because of that too many pigs or wild boar would cause absolute havoc and they can destroy habitat so you'd need that right level um, and so it's a lot easier to actually have a native breed but domesticated pigs that are pseudo wild boar so we're thinking like Tamworths here or you can do a Tamworth crossed with a wild boar and that's an iron age pig is what some people right, call okay, it yeah. so you can get these pigs that are as close to a wild boar as you can get without it being uh, a wild animal on yeah. that so uh, and again we control them move them around um, that side of things so that's that's what we're looking to the, the problem we've got at the minute is a lot of our infrastructure so our fencing is designed for keeping cattle in and ponies pigs are a different kettle of fish and uh, a lot of people keep them electric but just because of the the lengths and of fencing we're talking about um that isn't really a goer. Um, so I'm at the minute we're doing some trials this year. Um, so um, Amelia, um, a lady from Bodmin's, got some um, Cornish Blacks, which is a native breed pig. Uh, that's going to come on to Crift, which is one of our sites here, um, and graze it. And I've retrofitted some of fencing with different style fencing just to see how they interact with it yeah. and whether they can get through it. But we're going to have a kind of safety curtain of electric around it. So it's basically a bit of a trial to see how they push through and it'll just be a bit of a learning curve really for us um, yeah. to see how we can do it. Because, yeah, if we have to rip out all the fencing and replace it with uh, stock netting, that's going to be very, very expensive. Yeah. So, but we need to be sensible about it and keep our, obviously, animals on our hands. So. And, and from a conservation point of view, what, what role did wild boar play that, that pigs can now you know we talked about what ponies and, and cattle do what about the pigs yeah well, well pigs are they do things that like rootling is the, the one thing that the other animals don't do so they'll be they've got it's, it's mad you look at them um their nose looks very soft but it's like a plow it's they can go in and they can turn sorts of earth over it's really impressive to see and they've got very very strong necks to be able to turn over sorts of earth and they're eating the grubs etc or kind of roots etc of plants um and they're omnivorous as well so they will they will eat um insects but they also eat plant life as well so um and that turning over the soil creates germinating opportunities for a lot of annuals etc that um with cattle and ponies you're only really going to get that maybe from the kind of hooving action the poaching of the ground so that muddying up 
but too much of that and you can get compaction what a pigs by turning over it's not actually compacted ground it's opening it up and you can actually reverse compaction in, right. in some places um, so the other thing they can do is they can actually start helping uh, knock back some more of the dominant plants so we're standing here I'm, I'm looking at bracken and brackens can be a real pain um, it, it basically comes in so where, where we knock back scrub you've normally got a bit of nutrient enrichment from all that leaf litter after a while um, so we clear the scrub knock it back try to keep that open habitat and then you get bracken come up and you're like oh god now we've got bracken so there's you can uh, bruise it you can roll it you can cut it but what pigs will do will come in and they'll eat the rhizomes so those they're really um, rich in carbohydrates and they can actually uh, come in eat those rhizomes and that will completely um, well, not eradicate bracken, because bracken is an important habitat in its own right, but you just don't want it dominating everywhere. Yeah. So again, it's trying to keep that balance. So they can play roles like that, that the other um, animals can't. So that's, yeah. Yeah, so ponies, cattle, pigs, all sounds quite exciting mm. uh, possibilities for the future. There's, there's one other yes. reintroduction we haven't spoken about that we've talked about before on the Wild Cornwall podcast, but um, that might be coming to Helm and Tor, can you tell us a little bit about beavers? Yeah, so beavers, um, so they are really exciting ones. So if I was to um, arrange it into levels of excitement, beavers <laughs> would be right at the top. Yeah. Uh, and that's because um, they are um, famously ecosystem engineers, uh, which means they, they create habitat. Um, it, they can create, obviously, wetland pools, etc. but they're also getting into areas of the site that we struggle to. So willow car, for example, um, we have a breeding population of willow tits, um, which is a, our, our rarest uh, resident bird in the UK. We've lost 97% of them since the 70s, so not doing well at all. What they need is really damp woodland, but they need a varied age structure in that. So um, the reason uh, Breeding Common and Redmoor and um, other sites around Helmand are really good for willow tits, or historically have been really good, is because these sites um, were were tin streamed. Um, if you well from the 13th century all up to, all the way up to the 1960s, um, and what that left was a very bare, uh, open uh, kind of soil, but very impoverished. And over time, um, that's gone through succession. This, this woodlands have evolved through through succession um, and developed, um, and you've got this very dense willow, uh, which is absolutely fantastic for willow tit. However, we're now um, getting 60 years on from that, so that, that willow is maturing. And it's very difficult to access that ground because you're, you're getting into it and it's going up to your waist. It's, it's very, very wet in, in there. And then slinging a chainsaw around in there is, is very difficult, as you can imagine. But um, what a beaver can do is that it will go in there and it will nibble, coppice those trees, eat the uh, cambium, etc., eat the bark and it will regenerate those areas. And they won't do it everywhere, it's just obviously uh, where their, their water source is. Um, and so it, it, they'll be doing that day in, day out, um, and creating that, that kind of natural variety, uh, but also creating uh, pools, etc., which would be fantastic for our dragonflies and damselflies. Uh, we've got small red damselflies here, which is uh, quite a rare species. So they'll benefit from it as well. Um, so, it is really exciting. Um, we're still obviously waiting for the government to make a decision on whether wild releases are allowed. We're doing um, 
we've just recruited a, a beaver officer, which is very exciting, mm-hmm. um, to start preparing to applying for one license. And we've started um, talking to local people as well um, around it because they will be a, a wild population. Um, so they will will spread out beyond our boundaries. So we need to make sure that we've got um, people on board effectively with it um, and supply support. Because although there's lots of benefits, so obviously the biodiversity benefit is what we, we focus on really, but there's other benefits in terms of their dams, uh, their kind of leaky dams. So what it does, it slows the flow downstream, which means that um, if you go down downstream, um, it's going to potentially reduce flooding events because the water isn't getting into the river as quickly, so it kind of slows it down. And then in these hot summers that we keep having, it will actually keep the streams flowing because it holds water back and then slowly releases it. So you've got that, those benefits, but there are some negatives they can cause. If they put the dam in the wrong place, they can probably f- uh, flood out an area of a field um, or they can burrow into banks and um, cause damage that way. So there's a few things that we need to make sure uh, that we can um, support people and make sure that if there is an issue, we can go and sort that. So I myself, I'm, I've got now a license to uh, potentially remove dams, um, trap and relocate beavers, etc. Uh, and we've now got a team of people within the trust that are prepared and, and ready to do that. Working to mitigate risks. W- working and, to mitigate uh, risk. And we just need to make sure people are aware that um, I think 99% of people aren't, aren't going to be affected at all. But we need to make sure that 1% is, is looked after and yeah. that make sure that they feel supported and they've got somebody to call out to come out and see, make sure everything's all right. Um, and so that, that's where we are at the minute. But we've got to do a lot of stakeholder engagement before. So we're, we're a little way away from it, but we're, we're starting that, that process. And it, it's, it's very exciting, yeah. uh, obviously. Um, and I, I hope in the near future we'll, we'll see Beaver out on there. And they, they will make a, a fantastic uh, change and benefit to this site. Yeah. It's, it's going to be great to see. Um, uh, it'd be lovely for people to be able to maybe potentially have sightings when they're out on the site. Yeah, when I first saw them in the wild, just living wild, it, it was fantastic. When I went up to on the River Otter um, in Devon to see them, it was just fantastic just to see what they've been doing and that people are living alongside them and the end of the world's not happened. They're, yeah, yeah. they're, they're, they're great. They're and great. they would once have been native. To they, yeah, I mean, so yeah, they're a native species. Obviously, we hunted to extinction. Mm. So... Um, yeah, they're just one of those missing pieces that it would like to return. They're very territorial, so they're again, and they reproduce very slowly, so it's not going to be like this quick explosion of beavers. It, it will take a long, long time for them to kind of uh, populate catchments, etc. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, take a farewell. So, in a nutshell, Helmantor Nature Reserve is, is an amazing place already for wildlife. Mm. The, the plans that you and others in Cornwall Wildlife Trust are looking at are, are really hoping to make it even better for yeah. wildlife. Uh, yes, effectively. It's, it's trying to, because it is such a size now, um, it's becoming very difficult. So the, the difference to where we're proposing to go is that historically what we've done is we've tried to uh, replicate kind of those natural processes through uh, interventions that we do. So we'll do coppicing in woodlands, we'll um, cut and clear bracken, we'll um, there are a whole manner of uh, different management tools, cut willow car back, etc., just to regenerate areas. But um, the idea is to introduce those natural processes that would do that um, naturally. Um, and 
best will in the world, they, they will do it better than what we can as well. Right. Um, yeah. But I, I don't think we'll ever get to a point because um, we'd need a whole other suite of uh, wildlife in here to make it a fully function so we can finally go, all right, that can look after itself. That's that's going to... I, I first, we don't have the area for that because we'd need apex predators, yeah. etc. And that that's, that's a long way away. And that's yeah. um, whether that would actually come ever come to fruition, I, I'm not sure. So you still need human management, yeah, so we'll, we'll but be, it's letting nature we'll, yeah. to lead. So in process. terms of stocking levels and that, we'd obviously be controlling that. Instead of predators doing that, we will be controlling that in terms of saying, okay, we need a little bit less cows, we need a few more. Yeah. And so we'll try to replicate those kind of boom and bust cycles. So it's, it, it's very exciting, but yeah. um, it's, yeah, it's all just like daunting when you've got uh, species like marsh artillery that are hanging on by their eyelids effectively here and I could turn out some pigs and they could go turn over an area or the beaver dams the wrong bit and floods that bit out so uh, it's, it's going to be interesting we're going to have to have to manage it and control it but yeah that's that is exciting it is exciting can we talk a bit about the marsh artillery mm. I'm aware that this site is a site of special scientific interest triple mm. si yes can you can you tell us what what that means uh, and why the site's got it and a little bit about the marsh artillery butterflies yeah so um triple si or site special scientific interest that's a designation um, a national designation that's given um, to sites that's got um, a specific interest whether that be a specific habitat type uh, or species whether that be fauna or flora and it's, it's basically a protection for that site. So they would, a lot of them were designated in the 70s, um, as was this one. And um, they, they give key features, notifiable features. Um, and on this site, marsh artillery is one of them. Uh, so they're a very, very rare butterfly in the UK now. They used to be very, very widespread. We lost 79% uh, of them uh, since the 70s. So again, that's primarily due to habitat loss. Um, so intensive agriculture, uh, development, fragmentation through road networks, etc. Um, so they really, they're a bit of an odd species, really. They, they inhabit two kind of distinct habitat types. So we've got um, populations on very chalky grassland, uh, but we also have them on kind of wet and kind of acidic grassland as well. But they're the real important uh, plant for them is the uh, devil's bit scabious, uh, which is their food plant, and that's what they'll be um, feeding on as caterpillars. Um, they do nectar as adults, but um, it's really the caterpillars that eat the um, scabious leaves, etc. So here at uh, Hellman, that's kind of acidy, kind of tussocky grasslands, damp grassland. That's that's where we really find them. Um, the site also supports other very rare uh, species. So we've got um, willetit, as I've mentioned before. We've also got the small red damselfly. Uh, you've got the dormice, as, as, as we've mentioned. But we get um, species like uh, grasshopper warbler. We get large numbers of overwintering snipe on site, uh, woodcock in the woodlands as well. So there's a whole mixture of species that we have here. We do get the occasional nightjar that would come in and I'd love to see those come back and actually start breeding here. That'd be fantastic. Have you seen them here? Um, I haven't. I've heard a recording of them here. Right. Uh, yeah. But uh, they um, they come out, as the name suggests, in, in the, the evenings and nights. Um, but they're absolutely fantastic birds. So, yeah, I'm hopeful that in, in the future they'll, they'll um, come back, uh, particularly with this kind of um, increase in land holdings and increase in habitat. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. But um, Yeah. 
And if someone wants to come and, and see Marsh Fritillaries here at Helmand Tour, what, where and when would be so they're they're on the wing um, generally uh, during May June so we've just um, kind of passed the peak time yeah. um, so again you're looking for an area uh, that's got decent amount of scabious uh, and it has a number of different places they're a bit hard to describe <laughs> uh, but um, if any, if anyone's particularly interested they can get in contact with us and um, we can kind of point them to kind of key area hotspots. Um, some of the areas we'll ask people to kind of keep away because again if you have too many people and we do do get a lot of people that come to specifically see the marsh artillery because they are so rare they can inadvertently have a negative impact so whether that's through trampling etc um, so you've got to be a bit careful what, what we do but there, there are some easily accessible areas where we generally uh, point people to and they've got a good chance of seeing them so yeah they fl fly from about may to kind of early July, um, then the caterpillars will hatch about a month or so later, so August, September, that's when you see the larval webs. Mm -hmm. So they make these kind of communal webs together and it's to protect them from predators and also the climate, so um, weather. So um, it keeps them kind of dry and it keeps them off frost, etc. Um, and they'll be feeding on scabious leaves there. And it's actually quite, that's the probably easiest way to see them and find them is the larval webs. The adults can be a bit difficult when they're out. Um, unfortunately, this year, we, I think because of the dry summer we had last year and the kind of cold start to the spring, I think the numbers are a lot lower than they were. We had two very good years, last two years, but this year seems to, the numbers seem to have lower. dropped off a bit. Right. And you'll find that with marsh fertility, they, they are very volatile, the populations, um, very uh, prone to kind of peaks and troughs. Um, and it, the problem with them as well is they don't really disperse very well, not very great, good flyers. Um, so, and because we've got small pockets of these populations left, if you have a temporal event, whether that be particularly hard frost or, um, I don't know, somebody sets fire to a site or whatever, you can, you can lose populations pretty easily and it takes a long time for them to come back to it. So they are quite fiddly and tricky to uh, get just right. Um, yeah, so a bit, bit of a challenge, yeah, but it um, yeah, it's because it's they occupy this kind of transitional habitat as well, so you can't graze it too hard, yeah. but because you're not grazing it as hard as potentially you would want, you start getting scrub encroachment coming into it, and because you're not getting new areas open up, because we haven't got these um, woolly rhinos crashing through the undergrowth, etc., you're not getting this kind of creation of new habitat, and that that's partly where beavers would come in, they, the wet areas they clear it, clear um ritual wood and then you have these wet pools and around the fringe that's where your scabious will be and so right. actually they, okay. they they're going to really so kind of help real benefit yeah real yes. real benefit they'll improve it for uh, marsh fritz and also willow tits as well so they they'll be absolutely fantastic. that's why i'm so excited about yeah. them I'm being accused now of being a lazy conservationist because I want I want the animals you to do all the work for me. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. So yeah. Uh, yeah. I imagine you're still going to be quite busy, Andy. Yeah, I think I will be. <laughs> well, if someone's listening to this and, and thinks actually I really want to get involved and want to want to help, mm. what sort of opportunities are there to to support what's going on here and and more widely? Um, so there's there's loads of different ways uh, people can support. Obviously, becoming a member of the trust is a fantastic way to support the work we do. We've also got a uh, an appeal on at the minute for uh, Creamy Farm and the uh, kind of rewilding uh, aspirations. So again, introducing those um, mixed 
uh, grazing that I've been talking about, um, helping us to sort our infrastructure, make sure they'll stay, getting the right collars for the animals, yeah. GPS, ear tags, all, all, all those bits all these, have all, a cost. Yeah, yeah. all these yeah. things have a cost. Um, but they all, also people can get involved in terms of coming out, volunteering, etc. So we've got uh, volunteer work parties. So we've got a um, midweek kind of mid Cornwall uh, work party that meets on Tuesdays uh, fortnightly. Uh, we meet at our headquarters in Alec, just outside Truro. And it's a fantastic opportunity to, to go out with our reserve staff, help us carry out some management, but also have an opportunity to learn about the sites and Absolutely. see those areas that not a lot of people get to go see. So it's a, it's a fantastic opportunity. Uh, and, and we're really thankful for people that give up their free time to come out and help us. It really makes a huge difference. Uh, and if more people did it, we can just achieve bigger and better things. So it's, Great. Well, it's I'll put all the links for, for those bits in the show notes as well. Yeah. Last question, Andy, um, before I let you go. I want you to imagine you're on a different nature reserve. You're stranded on our Lou Island nature reserve for a year. Yes. And uh, I'm allowing you to take three things with you. Um, a luxury item of your choice, luxury item. Uh, a book, yeah, and uh, your favourite Cornish edible. My favourite Cornish edible. What, what would be your your choice? Should we start with a luxury item? Luxury item. I suppose because I'm I'm into my sea kayaking, so potentially a sea kayak. What that, a place to do it. <laughs> I mean, that'd be just to be able to explore around the island as well. Uh, that'd be absolutely fantastic. Book wise, I am reading the new. Um, Isabella Trees brought out a new uh, rewilding handbook, uh, which is really good. So, oh, that's a tough one. Um, yeah, maybe the rewilding handbook, or potentially I, I do like uh, Con Ingledon's got a good series about uh, Julius Caesar called um, Empire, I think it's called. Um, but yeah, that's fantastic. Right. So, yeah. And what about your Cornish edible? What would Cornish you, what would you oh, I do like my Cornish ales. You got you got a favourite ale? Cornish uh, ale? I, I, I do. I am quite fond of uh tribute i do like tribute yeah let's go take, go, take a tribute yeah take a tribute yeah don't, don't want to see kayak perhaps isabella tree's new book yeah and uh, and a cornish ale that's it yeah i think uh yeah probably not all at the same time if i say it'll go wrong but <laughs> <laughs> well thanks so much for your time andy it's been really helpful to talk to you yeah fantastic well thanks for coming out tom i hope you enjoyed listening to andy explaining all about that amazing nature reserve and Cornwall Wildlife Trust's plans to bring rewilding principles to our conservation work there. If you want to find out more about volunteering, becoming a member or donating to the rewilding appeal, you can find all the links in the show notes. Or if you'd like to make a visit to Helmand Tour, do make sure you download the brand new Wilderness Trail leaflet. Again, the links in the show notes. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.